folks, and welcome to another edition of Variable D Postulate Ensemble Projects. This is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drozdoff, and as always, I'll be acting as your host. Once again, and for the foreseeable future, this show is being brought to you from lovely Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. We're all struggling to deal with the isolation of social distancing and the disconnect that's so frustrating. We'll all get through this together. In the meantime, we need to adjust to different ways of working. For musicians, the new trend is virtual bands. Collaboration has been kind of a growing thing anyway, but in light of the national shutdown, it seems to have really taken off. I'm currently working on a couple of huge projects for the Shout Section Big Band. We recently did a virtual band video on John Dorhauer's really fun arrangement of It's the End of the World as We You Know It. You can find it on, it's all over Facebook, so you can find it on Facebook, and it's on YouTube. So go check it out. It's a lot of fun, and it's keeping the band connected. Uh, Dorhauer's arrangement of It's the End of the World as You Know It. Before we get to today's show, I want to give the usual shout-out to the companies I endorse. I play wedge brass mouthpieces on all my horns. These are designed by Dave Harrison up in British Columbia. To find out more, just go to wedgemouthpiece.com. I also play Getz and Trumpets. These fine instruments are made in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. To find out more about Getz and Trumpets, just go to www.getzen.com. Or just contact your local music store. All right. My guest today is gospel, pop, rock singer, band leader, producer, composer, civil rights activist, and businessman, Eric Thomas. I first got to know Eric while working for the Larry Eckerling Orchestra. I've always been dazzled by Eric's skill, exuberance, and sheer love for making music. In our lengthy conversation, he talked about everything from his experience as a gospel singer to singing at the Apollo Theater with the Independents. I'll let Eric tell his own story, but first let's hear him singing. Eric has a new CD, which can be found on CD Baby, Apple Music, and Spotify, and the other usual connected services to those who subscribe to CD Baby. Here's an original piece called Keep On Climbing, Eric Thomas.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am on uh, hey. I'm on Zoom now, speaking to uh, uh, Eric Thomas. I'm up in Surgeon Bay. Eric, you're where, in Schaumburg or Chicago? Where are you, man? I'm in Schaumburg. All right, Western Suburb. So, uh, yep. yeah, we're, everybody's hunkered down. <laughs> Not much live performing going on, but, you know, we're doing our music online, I guess. So, um, Eric and I have known each other for, you know, many, many years from working with Larry Eckling. But, Eric, you've done uh, music. I don't know if all your life, man. So I guess the first question I like to ask my guests in the pod is when did you decide or when did you decide to make music a significant part of your life, your life's work? What drove you to get started in doing that? Well, you know what, Nick? <clears throat> I have always enjoyed music. I, I started, my love of music started with me standing. I was maybe five years old and he used to just watch the, the record go around and around. I would listen to it, uh, and I would just watch it go around and around and play it over and over. And I've just always had a love of music, probably like so many other, uh, many, many other singers. Um, my first uh, uh, solo was in church. I uh, must have been maybe eight or nine years old. And... Um, yeah, and, and so I was singing with the junior choir, and and then I went into, uh, they had an instrumental thing. I wanted to play violin, but they didn't have any violins. Well, they ran out of violin and told me I was going to have to play clarinet. So that was my first instrument that I that I ever played. And But I always really enjoyed singing. And then, of course, you know, I grew up <clears throat> in my early teen, preteen years, you know, that was the Motown era. And so music was just huge uh, during during that time. And so my friends and I just did all kinds of things. We sang in groups like, just like the Temptations and those guys were doing in Detroit. Uh, we were doing the same thing in Chicago. Uh, the whole singing under the street light was very real. Uh, you know, we used to just stand around and harmonize under the street lights or uh interesting story i don't know whether this would be interesting to your to your um to your listeners but um a friend of ours knew how to harmonize so what we would do is we would go uh to the upstairs bathroom in our house where we live because that was big enough for us to all stand in and of course you know in the bathroom everybody sounds great because of the, the reverb and so on <laughs> And, and we would be in there singing, and my parents would come home from work and knock on the door and say, hey, can we get in there? And we're like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we were in there in the bathroom practicing harmony. And uh, <clears throat> But I did all kinds of things. You know, I hooked up with other people. You will remember uh, Anthony Finney that was our sound man for a while. He and I were uh, in different groups in high school, you know, uh, bands. Um, uh, we in high school, uh, there were there were these bands, these big bands that used to um, uh, do these stage shows for the Motown Review and and so on. And so we had little microcosms of those in high school. You know, we had our 10, 12 piece band, and we would be banging and clanging and you know just playing all the tunes and stuff. And so I became a band leader. You know, I was kind of the band leader, and I really wasn't singing 
then very much. It was more uh, instrumentally based. And I was a student conductor of my high school band as well. So my during my early high school years, it was um, uh, maybe up until my senior year. And we had something called senior entertainment. And so all of the senior classes had what they called homeroom division. And so for about, I mean, that went on for about a half hour. And they would literally let groups come in and perform for the seniors during that period. And so I started actually singing. Uh, I started singing then. And then after that, <clears throat> well, I went to college as a music major. But while I was in college, my mother had joined the civil rights movement under Reverend Jesse Jackson. Yeah. And she told me, you got to come and, and see this choir. And uh, huh. so yeah. I go to see the choir. They're in blue jeans, jackets, and... Well, did you have something else you wanted to ask me? No, no, I'm go ahead, man. This is this is great. <laughs> I don't want to stop you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my mom, uh, a friend of hers had told her about Reverend Jesse Jackson. And so she told me, you got to come see this choir. So I go to the meeting that would meet on Saturdays, Saturday morning. And I saw this choir you know, I came out of the church choir where you wore robes and stuff like that. And so these guys are singing freedom songs and they've got on blue jean jackets and and blue jeans and these white turtlenecks. And they're singing this song, You Know My Heart, and they sounded great and everything. And I just couldn't wait to join. And so um, although I had sang in college, you know, after singing in the church choir, I sang in choir. Um, I was actually in the band and the choir, but something happened and I had a conflict. And I so what I did was I dropped band and I um, and I sang in the in the uh, in the uh, in the choir in uh, in college. And what was really interesting is um, there seems to me, and I don't know whether it's all singers, but for me, there's always this spiritual element to music and I, I can be listening to country uh I can be listening to classical I mean I just am a huge Luciano Pavarotti fan I mean uh I mean I think this guy could have blown down a gospel church because he had the kind of emotion and sincerity that you have in gospel music so I would literally in the choir be singing with my eyes closed because the melodies were so beautiful. And my choir director came and said, you know, can I ask you a question? He's, I said, yeah. He said, why are you singing with your eyes closed? <laughs> I said, because I'm just feeling this, you know. And he said, oh, okay. So, um, so while I was in college, my first summer, that's when I got hooked up with what at that time Reverend Jackson was, was a, Reverend Jackson had been appointed by Dr. King to head an economic, um, focused organization of the S Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was um, uh, called Operation Breadbasket. And Operation Breadbasket was supposed to uh, pursue economic opportunities for black and minority-owned businesses. So, But they had a Saturday meeting, which was similar to a church service, except it was more, um, uh, more the, the message and everything was around civil rights but the format 
was very similar to a church. Uh, you know, you didn't read a scripture and stuff like that. You told about events and then Reverend Jackson would come on and speak and we would sing. And that's where I really got my first solo. And my first solo with the uh, Operation Breadbasket Choir was a song called I Believe. I'm sure you've heard it's called I Believe for Every Drop of Rain That Falls, the Flower oh, yeah. Grows and that. So that was my that was my, that was my first song. So I went back to college, and then in my senior year, um, I was actually going to go to. I was I was pursuing a, a career in teaching, and I was and I had to take some extra courses to get certified to teach in Chicago public schools. And one day I got a call at home, and it was for from the manager of a group that Reverend Jackson's brother sang in and the group is called the independence and not only did reverend jackson's brother sing it but uh uh, Natalie Cole's first husband, who is Marvin, Reverend Marvin Yancey, uh, he was singing in the group, and he was singing the high tenor stuff. So I got a call because one of the members of the group was planning on quitting, which would, you know, there was only, uh, I think, four of them. So that would have left them uh, one short. You know, there would literally have only been two of them in there. So I get a call, and out of the clear blue sky, because a friend of our family was the road manager, for the independence at that time. And they had just started. They had one hit out called Just As Long As You Need Me. And the, and the interesting thing is, um, to show you where the connection came in, when I was in my senior year in college, the Black Student Union had a party. And so I was the president of the Black Student Union. And I went to the union hall where the party was going to be. And the DJ was playing music. So he played the Independence first single, Just As Long As You Need Me. <laughs> cool. So I'm here, and I'm, like, and I'm like, man, that is really a cool song. Who is that? He said, oh, that's this new group called the Independence. Well, fast forward, um, I'm at uh, an event called Black Expo. Black Expo was an event that Reverend Jackson formed at the International Amphitheater, and black businesses from all over used to rent booths. And the idea was to give the black community to, uh, for the black, for black businesses in the black community to showcase what they did so that maybe black people could do more business with black businesses. But part of that event was a big musical production. I mean, Aretha Franklin performed there, Richard Pryor, James Brown, uh, the Jackson five, you know, just a number so I'm sitting there, and who comes up there? The Independents, you know, and there's, and I'm like, oh wow, that's the group that I heard uh, in college. Okay, so now this is this is the summer, so probably in August, which may have been, couldn't have been more than 45 days after I saw them at Black Expo, I get a call from their road manager, like I said, who was a friend of our family, and he said. Uh, Hey, listen, the independents are looking for a singer. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, they're looking for a singer. You interested? I said, are you kidding? So 
He says, well, listen, you can go for an audition. He said, well, why don't you come down for an audition? I said, when? He said, tomorrow morning. I said, oh, fantastic. <laughs> so, Nick, I ran out and bought every one of their records. I mean, I bought the album or they had a couple of singles or whatever. I bring them home. I'm listening to them over and over and over and over and over. So I go and Reverend Jackson's brother walks in and uh, he said, you know, I know your mom and dad. I said, oh, yeah. So I sang for him and he said, uh, he said, oh, yeah, man, I like your voice. Uh, good. You're in. I said, oh, wow. Awesome. So <laughs> he said, we need to I want you to meet our manager. So the next day I go to the meeting with the manager and the guy that was going to quit said, you know what? <clears throat> I think I'm staying. I'm not going to quit. My no. heart just sank, Nick. <laughs> so my heart just sank. So I prepared my, you know, concession speech. I said, listen, uh, so I'm still sitting in the meeting. Nobody has said, well, you know, hey, Eric, we thanks, but we're not going to be able to use you, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sitting in the meeting, and all of a sudden, when an opportunity came up, I said, listen, I want to thank you guys uh, for the opportunity that I almost had, and I kind of did a nervous chuckle. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Maurice is staying. So they said, oh, no, you're not going anywhere. I said, I'm not? So they said, no. Well, here's the reason I wasn't going. Natalie Cole's first husband, Reverend Marvin Yancey, was the pastor of a church. He was the pastor of his father's church who had passed away. And he was getting a lot of heat from the Baptist Ministers Association or something about him singing popular music. Now, they didn't mind him. They didn't mind, you know, they couldn't do anything about him playing because he was also writing, you know, for the independents. Uh, you know, he was Reverend Jackson's musician. He was his... Uh, uh, Elton John and, uh -huh. and, and Reverend Jackson's brother was the topping of the, he was the lyricist uh, yeah. of, the, of the collaboration. So, uh, and, and, and Natalie Cole's first husband, Reverend Marvin Yancey, used to sing a high tenor thing on the end of the Independence Records. And that was what I did, you uh -huh. know. So that's, how I took over. And that's how I ended up in the independence and just had the time of my life, man. And, and the most exciting thing, as you probably know, was when we were on the show at the Eric Crown Theater in Chicago with Aretha Franklin. Oh, and man. we went back in her dressing room to meet her. And man, I was just Nick in awe of Aretha Franklin. And when I went in, when we went in her dressing room, they embarrassed me and said, you know, this guy loves you. I said, yeah, I do. I loved you. And she just said, oh, that's so nice. And But we were on the show with her yeah. several other that. But we were on Nick with all kinds of people. And I'll just tell you a couple of funny stories. And I probably, you probably heard these when we were in the band. But we were, they told us we were going to be on the show with Ray Charles at a place called the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I was like, man, Ray Charles, seriously? You know, Ray Charles is boring. And, and it. So we go to the <laughs> sound check with Ray Charles. There's a 20-piece orchestra on stage. So he starts playing, <clears throat> and the orchestra starts playing. Hey, hold, 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 baby. Wait a minute, baby. Third trombone. Your little flat, baby. Pull, pull, it, pull it in a little bit. Oh, and, wow. man... 
I'm like, he heard the third trombone <laughs> out of a 20-piece orchestra. You know, and Ray Charles used to shoot dice backstage, you know. <laughs> now, can you man the bland guy? He's like, he's like, now, you know, and he was back there on the floor. He's like, now, you guys aren't going to cheat on Ray, are you? You guys aren't going to cheat on Ray. Oh, no, Ray, you know, we're not going to cheat you. So, and then I, and then I worked at the Apollo. The Apollo was an amazing experience because, uh, I had heard so many stories, you know, about the Apollo. If they don't like you, they're going to throw stuff at you and stuff. So I'm just, you know, I, I was just, and, and then we rubbed that little, uh, whatever that is, the magic thing, you know, that you rub before you go on stage. But we also used to pray every time we went yeah. on stage. But we actually, honestly, got that from Gladys Knight and the Pips because we saw them do that. And uh -huh. then after we saw them do that before they went on stage, we started doing it. But uh, we went out there, man, and because we were dressed well and we had a nice sound, you know, they loved us. But, man, that Apollo was like four shows a day, and you just sat there. There was no place to go or nothing <laughs> to do. You just sat there, you know. And uh, But I, I did so many amazing things. I've been on the show with Gladys Knight and OJ's and oh man, just so many, many different um, entertainers. And then after the group broke up, you know, I went into the toy industry, so I wasn't doing a lot of singing then. But to kind of fast forward, uh, in my transitioning back to Chicago, there was a lady uh, who passed away. Her name was Sue Conway, and she was very, very well known. And what had happened was, it was a group called the Gentlemen of Leisure, which was primarily hmm. uh, uh, an African-American aggregation. And these guys started getting so many gigs because a lot of the, 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 lot of the families and weddings and things, they wanted the Gentlemen of Leisure because they wanted that, you know, they wanted to hear soul music and that soul sound. So what happened then is a lot of the band leaders started including... Uh, and incorporating R&B singers. And Sue Conway was one of the first people that did that. Oh, yeah. And she did that kind of coming of, you know, she did that. She used to tour with Roberta Flack. So yeah. she kind of, you know, transitioned from Roberta Flack to, you know, the uh, the jobbing scene. So yeah. I get a phone call on my, on my cell phone. A guy named Larry Eckling, he says, hey, this is Larry Eckling, and I hear you're a good singer, and you've been recommended by Sue Conway, and, and I want you to uh, come and audition for my band. So that's how I ended up with uh, Larry, and now we've been together. Uh, I think this we're going on uh, 29 years. Oh, my. This will be my 29th year with Larry. Yep. Wow. So that's my little journey. And then I started doing some solo things. Uh, I've been doing some solo things in church and at um, uh, different events, you know, and, 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 and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's, that's my little journey. But it's been, it's been great, man. I just have had – I've been so, so blessed to meet wonderful people like you and the other band members and – you know, it, it's it's just been great. It was a it was an amazing, you know, it was an amazing experience, because yeah. I went from 
see what happened with me when I joined Larry, man, I was doing three, four gigs a year. You know, I was doing weddings and, and, you know, funerals and some, uh, awards things. And I'll tell you a little funny story about the weddings. Uh, this is the last little thing I'll tell you about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I used to do weddings, when I used to do weddings, they would, so you go to rehearsal and they would say, okay, now we want the Lord's prayer. So I would get up and sing the Lord's prayer and every spot in the wedding where there was a song, I would sing the song. And if they did the wedding over, you know, if they did the whole ceremony over, then I would sing over. It took me years to get to the point that I was like, wait a minute, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing all this singing. What I'm going to do is I'll rehearse with the musician. I, I mean, it was just the weirdest thing. And I didn't even think anything about it. Okay, can we get uh, my girl again? Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I sing my girl two or three times that night at, at the wedding rehearsal. You know, it's just insane. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just a funny story I wanted to share with you about that. Jobbing yeah, is, so jobbing that's is my jobbing. little journey. Very cool. Now, Eric, you mentioned that you are uh, kind of this kind of all started up in college. Where did you go to college? Tell us a little bit about that. Augustana, Rock Island. It was a little small uh, Lutheran college. My pastor was Lutheran, and he, you know, he got me in there. Now, uh, you were at still... that time. There was. Uh... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Right. Now you were uh, studying. No, to the... <laughs> this is where that delay is a problem. I'll go. I'll ask my question. Uh, you said you were uh, studying to be a music teacher. Was that your goal? I really wanted to be a band conductor. Okay. But you know, this is where, this is where, you know, when you don't get uh, an adequate education up front and, you know, I asked, I actually even asked, and, and, and a matter of fact, let me take you back. I went to music camp. Um, that was amazing at, um, uh, I think it's Kansas city, the university of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. I went to music camp. Now, that was still during my instrumental years. And my parents primarily sent me to music camp because in Chicago, they were doing gang recruitments uh, at that time in the summer. So oh, you just wow. literally couldn't go out because gangs would show up at the basketball courts and, you know, and if you weren't in the gang or whatever. So my parents sent me away for the summer to wow. music camp. And by the time I came back from music camp, it was time to go back to school and so that whole gang thing was all over, you yeah. know, but, uh, but my point, but, but to answer your question more directly, I ended up dropping out because dropping out of music education, because I just didn't have, um, you know, there were no music theory classes taught in high school or anything like that. You sang in the choir and played in the band, you know, you didn't, you didn't really learn, uh, even though my band leader was dynamic, he had a, he had a stage band that used to play for the stage shows and he would come pick me and, uh, he would pick up Finney and I on Saturdays and take us, uh, to where they were playing, uh, at some theater, you know? And, uh, so it was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> but they didn't teach you theory and stuff. So by the time I got to college, man, I was just so far behind and I just, I just wasn't getting music theory. And then, you know, I was going to have to take orchestration and 
And I just wanted to direct the band, you know. Yeah. I, I didn't want to have to learn. I didn't want to have to learn all that. I thought I was just going to be able to pick my baton up and swing it back and forth. And, you know, so I, uh, you know, once it got real technical with all of that, I, I just got out of music and I ended up uh, majoring in sociology primarily because Reverend Jackson had majored in sociology and, you know, and, and, and I found actually sociology very interesting and I had a minor in social work. So, um, and of course, when I graduated, I couldn't find a job, which is why I went back into, which why I was going to go back into education. Okay, man. Amazing stuff, Eric. Uh, now, um, uh, you kind of, I kind of got the impression that maybe uh, the experiences uh, in music education may have been somewhat lacking in a lot of ways. Um, but you had a wonderful experience, and that's still ongoing. It's in progress, I might add. Um, as a professional musician, what skill sets do you think are necessary if you were educating a young mus- a young singer who wants to go out into the world and become a professional musician? What skill sets would you urge them to develop uh, as soon as possible? Well, you know, some some of what you have access and don't have access to uh, many times can depend on your family's financial resources, you know, because when you begin to talk about, you know, once I started taking voice lessons, which was, uh, oh, my God, I, I, I had to be in my 40s or so before I started taking oh, wow. voice lessons. As a matter of fact, you may remember when I had my throat surgery and had the polyps removed, um, I started taking voice lessons after that. But that guy was like, uh, oh, my God, I, I think I was paying, uh, it, it was 75 or 80 bucks an hour. For, for that, you know, wow. uh, and he taught me a lot of things. He taught me, and you know, I paid about $3,000 in total, but you know, that ability to sing in my head voice, I mean, him teaching me that much was worth it because okay. it's so much fun singing in your head voice. And you, as, as, and for those that don't know, for your yeah. listeners, you know, the head voice, even Stevie sings in his head voice, but the head voice is between Paul Settle and the chest voice, you know, mm-hmm. and it allows you to sing kind of in that upper register, you know. And uh, but I guess <clears throat> if you can see the public school system is is uh, you know there isn't a lot of things. I, I got a grandson that goes to Lincoln Park High School, and I don't even know if he gets a lot of individual training. You know, he's singing in some groups and stuff, and they're teaching them techniques but it's more in aggregate than you know doing some individual things and excuse me i tried to get him into voice lessons and also the oh here's one thing to answer your question more directly one of the things i would encourage a a singer to do is to really try and pick an accompaniment instrument because when you can sing and play for yourself you know you're always going to be much better off because as you try and get gigs and things like that, you know, if you can play for yourself, you're much better off and you can present a much better financial package as opposed to having to add on a keyboard player and then, you know, and then yourself. Uh Uh So, uh, guitar, keyboard, uh, you know, 
uh, one of those instruments to be able to, to accompany uh, yourself. Um, and then, um, you know, I always tell singers, they, they ask me, uh, do you, do, do you give voice lessons? And I said, no, I really don't give, uh, voice lessons. I said, because I can't play. And the truth is my voice teacher couldn't play either. It took us a half hour to get through. You are the sunshine of my life with them <laughs> playing one chord at a time. But, um, but I would say pick a song that has a message that resonates uh-huh. with you, whatever, whatever that, whatever that song is. And that, and that's, uh, what I do, except now in jobbing, you have some dance songs and you're playing those just for people to dance to. Yeah. But even in that experience, you have songs like Unchained Melody or You Send Me or, um, uh, uh, there's this song that Andre Bocelli and Celine Dion used to do called The Prayer. I used to love doing that because I, you know, I sang in different languages and because in college I had learned how to sing in different languages. Um, uh, that would be my advice to singer. And also this, this is something I told my grandson, the pronunciation of your words and your intonation is so important because your intonation, uh, manages the quality of your sound. You know, so often in popular music, people want to sing all wide mouth and, you know, but it, it doesn't, you know, you don't get the, the quality in your tone that you should get. And the second thing is, is that people should understand what you're saying. Uh-huh. You know, when you're, when you're singing, people should, you know, should understand what you're saying. Because I tell people, I tell my son, you know, you're, it's like an actor, except, except you're like in a musical. That's one of the things I like about opera. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if I know what they're saying. What I can do is I can see the emotion and the intensity, you know, and the intensity uh, comes from uh, what I would call an authenticity, you know, to be authentic and be true to yourself. Don't try to get over, you know, try to bring the house down. Just, you know, sing from your heart share your gift and your message with your audience. And as they say, what comes from the heart goes to the heart. It really is interesting to hear you share this, Eric, because I can be honest and, you know, being in the horn section behind you with Larry's band for all those years, I have to admit, I was always completely captivated by the idea that you just loved what you were doing and that that was something you were sharing. Oh, no, I'm not here to sing. I have come here to entertain. Huh? You know, I am I am entertaining. Honest. I'm not just standing up here. Although there were many times that, you know, you just sing your heart out and the people go sit down or they give you some little token clap and they go sit down. But I had to adjust and understand that that's okay. There's a very kind of personal, spiritual relationship between the the music and you know the uh the message that that you're delivering see these people aren't here the the people at the parties we play at they're not 
there to get that. Sometimes they do, you know, and you hear them respond. But other times they don't because you are just, it's almost like you're just like a live DJ, just like they wouldn't clap after a record went off. They don't clap yeah. when you get done, which is why I always try to add something to the live performance, which gives us a reason for being. You know, if, if, the, if the band, other than the sound, isn't going to be anything different than having a DJ, you know, you want to give them something they can't get from a DJ. You know, they can't get the DJ out in the audience dancing with the people. And I used to explain to me, if you notice, Nick, I used to have my outfits and my jackets and I had different colors of this and that. Because the truth is, when I walked out on that thing with the lights going and the people out there in the audience, I might as well have been uh, uh, at the Eric Crown or, or uh, uh, Radio City Music Hall. Uh-huh. Now, mentally... You know, physically, I wasn't there. Mentally, I was. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. man, I this is, this is like the independence, you know. And, man, you guys, and the thing is, I always, uh, my whole tenure with Larry, uh, I have always had the ability to play with some amazing musicians. Uh-huh. You know, and when I would turn around and and then hear some of those notes you would hit and stuff, I'm like, whoa! <laughs> you know, I'd hit those high notes on your trumpet and stuff, man. You guys were, you guys were class. You were class act. You know, you're first rate musicians, and it was just an amazing musical experience because across the entire spectrum of that bandstand every gig I was going to hear something unique from everybody from the trombone player all the way over to Larry himself some little lick Larry played because man I heard everything (laughs) you know because even as a we talk about as singers a lot of times people will listen to a song and hear a singer sing man I'm hearing every little dip, inflection, little run, little accent, you know, little whatever. I'm listening to all of that, but I not only do that with singers, I also do that with musicians. Yeah. I hear every little thing, every single thing you guys are doing. And it was just an amazing experience because each one of you was special and unique and you always brought something unique. And, And you know, we used to do the play that funky music. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the play that funky medley. Well, I just made that thing up. You know, I just, and, and every night <clears throat> it was something different, but <clears throat> you guys, man, Hey, you got something? You guys got some? Oh yeah, we got some. Here's the horn. One, <laughs> two, go. <clears throat> and you guys, man, would just kick in with some kick butt stuff. And, <clears throat> And you and you and your energy came back to me. Yeah. So I I really fed on the stuff that that you guys were doing. And you know Nick from being in the band, man. We could cook, man. Oh. That band when we got cranked up and warmed up, man, and got four or five tunes under our belt, man, we could blow the house down. And everybody did their part. Every singer, every musician contributed to that 
It's really fun hearing you reminisce about this, Eric, because that's, you're absolutely right. Uh, so much, some of these great bands, and Larry's band is a great band. Uh, you, people at wedding, they're at a wedding, and they're there to kind of have a party and everything. And and like you said earlier, it may not be the you know being spiritually moved or touched may not be the high the highlight of what they're looking for, but the band and you know, what the musicians bring to it is amazing. And like you said, some of this stuff just kind of happens. It's not necessarily written out. We, you just turn around and say, let's do this. And bam, we just made something up and it came out. And that, that excitement, that energy, that, uh, that uh, camaraderie that, that gives rise to all of that is something that uh, I think makes being a musician in general and jobbing musicians a very, very special thing. Now, Eric, you, you had a pretty amazing experience with the independence and the uh, you know, kind of a full-time thing there. Did you, uh, it was my understanding that you've gone the day gig route and uh, what is it? Uh, when did you decide to add uh, a day gig to your experience as a musician? Cause it's obvious you've never stopped singing and never stopped being a musician. So when, when, uh, how did the day gig become part of your experience? Well, actually, um, the, the music actually has augmented the day gig. Oh. Um, the truth is, Nick, I wasn't really willing to, I had heard too many horror stories about, uh, singers who quote unquote, uh, tried to make it in the music business and they were willing to sacrifice everything. You know, um, and I can, I can tell you, I recently watched, I don't know if you've heard of this gospel group called the Clark sisters, Mm -hmm. but I recently watched a documentary about them and you know, it's the same thing that runs through so many of them. And it's that triumph mixed with tragedy. Uh You know, it's almost like, I don't care who you look at, Sam Cooke, Aretha Franklin. I don't know so much about Gladys Knight, but, you know, Al Green went through his thing, and so many of the others had to make... I heard even Loretta Lynn say that she didn't even know her teenage son because she never saw him. Uh-huh. You know, she was on the road all the time, you know, because these people, when you were an entertainer, I remember when my son, my first son was born and I used to be so depressed when I'd have to leave him to go on tour. And I would literally lay in the van <clears throat> on the back seat with a flashlight with his picture. And I would just look at his picture oh, wow. for hours, man, because I just missed him that much. And so I began to realize the sacrifice I was going to have to make. And I made it twice in my life, as a matter of fact, because once for singing, and the second time was when, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Reverend Jackson was going to run for president in 1984. Oh, yeah. And he literally said to me, Eric, I want to help you get to your next step. Well, at that time, my father had worked for Reverend Jackson, and my father was just like never home. But I was much older than than my kids were, you know. 
And um, so I <clears throat> just couldn't do it. You know, he was going to be gone all the time. And then one of the guys that traveled with him that actually grew up with my mother told me, she said, listen, he said, listen, <clears throat> let me just tell you something. When you travel with him, that becomes number one. Now, who knows where I could have ended up? Everybody that traveled with Reverend Jackson ended up someplace else great, you know. Uh, <clears throat> but I just, I couldn't do it. So not only could I not pursue a career, I was in another group after the independence. And, um, you know, we got to a certain point, but... We weren't able to cross the line. But the interesting thing is, is we recorded our first album in the same studio where Aretha Franklin recorded hers. Oh, wow. Down in uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which was very, very, a uh, really thrilling experience. As a matter of fact, some of the musicians that had played on her original, on uh, her first kit, played on our uh, CD. Uh, we used, uh, as a matter of fact, we used an uh, Isaac Hayes producer produced our first um, album. It was a group called Silk. And, uh, but we just never got out. We recorded two albums, but we, but we just never were able to catch on, you know. Because at that time, the time we were trying to do that, we were more, we had more of that independence love song format. Uh, we had more of that independence love song format. And uh, <clears throat> and uh, the um, the what was going then was disco. Oh yeah, you know. And so we just didn't. Yeah, you know, we didn't have that sound, and we weren't able to find a producer that really. Um, we were trying to bring the love songs back, and and that's just not what was happening then. So I eventually, to support my family, I had to find me a day gig, and boy, was that. That I go through, you know, I went, I went from driving a cab to selling toys, wow, from from Mattel toys. That was an amazing experience too. That uh, selling toys in the toy industry was an amazing, an amazing experience. Now the industry has changed quite a bit, and Walmart literally, which is why I almost don't shop at Walmart <laughs> even today, because Walmart came in and destroyed a whole way of living. You know, they literally came in and wiped out the manufacturer's representative. And, man, that was a great gig. I mean, you you got paid. Uh, you got a nice salary. You got good benefits. You work from home. You got a company car. And, you know, and all the benefits that went with that, the gas, and, you know, maintenance and, 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 and all of that that went with that. And, uh, and when they came in, they just killed all of the medium size and small retailers that we used to call on. Yeah. You know, yeah. because now you could get everything at Walmart. And one of the things that Walmart did is they built in these, they started out in these rural communities and they just killed off. They just systematically killed off all those little retailers and stuff that we called on, you know, some guy that had, the toy stores and, and, and stuff like that, they just wiped them out. So <clears throat> music has always augmented the day gig because I was never able to make enough. And thank God, man, 
I'm praying for so many of my brothers and sisters who, you know, I think about band leaders who make their living. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, doing weddings and things like that, man. You know, you think about what are these guys doing? Yeah, you know, because right. they just wiped out a whole season. And you think if that was your main source or, you know, you think about some of our friends that are band leaders and uh-huh. and stuff like that that have bands and many of the musicians that depend on that, you know, depend on that income. And I'm telling people, you know, don't get ready to do anything before September. Yeah. yeah. And And the other thing that has to happen is after these guys open the government up, then you and I have got to get comfortable about going out again. Yeah, that's right. You know, you couldn't have asked for a better part-time gig mm-hmm. than, than Johnny, you know, because yeah. man, you made, when it, when it was cooking, man, you made good money. Yeah. yeah. You know, working part-time, doing 50 gigs, you know, 50 or 60 gigs a year. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was good money. Now, Eric, you mentioned Operation, I think it was Breadbasket, you called it. Is that what it is now known as Operation Push? Yes. Are you still singing with a choir? Well, I mean, right now. Well, Breadbasket uh, evolved to uh, People United to Serve Humanity. And that was when Reverend Jackson broke from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and started uh, Operation Push. Okay. Then when he ran for president, he created the Rainbow Push Coalition, which would is technically like the political arm. And that was what he ran his presidential campaign under. Okay. So Operation Push now has programs like Push for Excellence that offer scholarships and, and, and things like that. And the Rainbow Push Coalition uh, is a little more political. Uh, okay. you know, involved in, in, in politics and public policy and, and, you know, and things like that. So that's how th- it's really the rainbow push coalition. Now yeah. I heard, I remember coming down there one time with my kids to, to attend the, um, uh, I don't know if you call it a service, a meeting, I guess. And I was, uh, got a chance to hear you sing with that choir. It was absolutely hair raising. I loved it. I just loved it. When I am down And oh my soul so weary When troubles come And my heart burdened be Then I am still and waiting In the silence Until you come And sit a while with me you raise me up so I can stand on mountains you raise me up to walk on stormy seas and I am strong when I am on your shoulders You raise me up to more than I can be.
Por ti seré más fuerte que el destino Por ti seré tu héroe ante el dolor Yo sin ti estaba tan perdido uh, Eric, one last question because we're about at the end of our uh, length of time for our little my little podcast here. Uh, I always like to ask this of uh, my guests. Uh, if you had a young singer uh, who has come to you for uh, one last piece of advice, and this is the last chance you have to talk to this person, what would you tell them uh, that would be the one lasting piece of advice to uh, help them launch their career as a singer? You know, honestly, Nick, <clears throat> I would tell them the same thing I tell my grandsons who are in athletics. Okay. You always need a backup. Always have you a good backup because the truth is so many people don't make it in the music business. It's a great business, and there are many, many talented people out here, but there are many, many different variables that determine whether you make it. And there's also to consider this, something somebody told me. <clears throat> they said, you know, you can make a, a living in the music business, but becoming a star is something altogether different. Uh -huh. So, you know, the first thing is to be true to your craft, pay your dues, and I guess I would say, follow your star wherever it leads. But always remember, as an adult, you have to provide for yourself. So you always have that backup. One of the best examples is a guy I went to school with. His name is Kenny Anderson. He became the uh, quarterback for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. But he also got a law degree. Uh-huh. Okay, so when football was all over, and that's what's going to see, and that and that, there's another thing too. That's where that differentiation between uh, wanting to have a career in music and being a star takes place, because singers, unfortunately, in some instances. And, and particularly a lot of the female singers, you suffer from, not as much, but, you know, when you want to be a star, you know, that's a very fleeting thing because in many instances, the older you get, the less relevant uh, mm -hmm. you become in the music business because the music business changes so much and it becomes, uh, you know, about young people and, and all of that. So when that's all over, or if God forbid, you don't make it, always have that backup. And then when you have that backup where you can support yourself and your family, if you decide to have one, then you can enjoy your gift. And that doesn't mean that you don't follow your star wherever it leads. It just means that when you're young, you build that foundation underneath you that's going to catch you. And so there's a lot of decisions you have to make, 
you know, a lot of things you have to think about as you look at what you want to do with your life because you can't go back. Uh huh. You know, yeah. you can't you can't go back. Well, Eric, uh, man, that's great, great advice that any young person definitely would want to have. Eric, I gotta tell you, man, uh, you're a very easy person to interview. <laughs> <laughs> All I had to do was pop in a couple of questions, and you're there, man. That was awesome. Uh, but, Eric, seriously, I can't thank you enough for doing this today. I am so grateful that you were able to sit down and chat with me. So, Eric, uh, my parting words to you, and, man, be safe, be healthy, uh, and just keep the love up with your music. Thanks so much for doing this, Eric. Oh, thank you, Nick. And if I could throw in one shameless plug, I have my one CD that I've done. Uh, called Keep On Climbing. It's at cdbaby.com. Uh, I don't know that iTunes is still around, but uh, it's at cdbaby.com. Uh, you can go and listen. And if you like it, uh, you can download your copy, and I'd certainly appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent, Eric. No problem. Uh, when I end the setup for the show, I'm going to give them the links and everything. I'll do all the research. So we got your back, man. Eric, thanks again. Thank you, Nick. God bless you, man. Well, I can't begin to thank Eric enough for our little journey together today. I hope his experience can serve as a model for thinking things through for your own career development as a freelance musician. Eric still sings with the Rainbow Push Coalition Choir, though they are on hiatus under the circumstances, and he still works as a jobber in the greater Chicago area. Thanks for listening, folks. If you like this show, please hit the subscribe button and share the word around about the podcast. This is episode 24. So go back and check out the other 23. These are all little mini career day seminars for aspiring professional musicians. Well, that's it for this week, folks. I do appreciate your being here. Till next week, be safe, be kind, be well. Don't stop the music. Peace.